You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. Plato's big question. Who remembers Plato's big question? It was exactly the same as Pontius Pilate. What is truth? That was Plato's big question. Well, Plato, Mr. Pilate, truth is what God says it is. In reality, it's determined by God the Creator. And we can understand truth only if the God of truth tells us what truth is. And God has done just that. All of us are on a search for truth and meaning. Countless men and women have spent their lives on this quest just to come up empty-handed. As Pastor Dave explains in today's message, God alone defines truth. Man can devise all sorts of philosophies, but if they contradict God, they are empty and false. Now here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 17 as he begins his message, Paul and the Philosophers of Athens. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Samuel T. Coleridge was an English poet, and he was a philosopher. He's probably best known for his poem, Kubla Khan. But he said this, Christianity is not a theory or speculation, but a life. It's not a philosophy of life, but a living presence. Not a philosophy of life, he says. This is interesting. Man has been trying to come up with a philosophy of life for centuries. Most philosophies of men are the exact opposite and come directly against God. And God's word. Scripture utterly condemns human philosophy in a host of places. One of them is Colossians 2, verse 8, where the Apostle Paul, talking to the church in Colossae, says this Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. God's wisdom and man's pretended wisdom cannot be harmonized. They cannot go together. They cannot work hand in hand. They are utter opposites. Whole books have been written showing the inconsistencies of trying to merge the two together. And others have repudiated human philosophy point for point compared to the word of God. 
So what is philosophy? Well, philosophy, according to Webster's 1828 dictionary, is a combination of two Greek words. The first word is philo, which means love. And the second word is sophia, which means wisdom. Philosophy is the love of wisdom, the love of knowledge, the love of wisdom. You know, for centuries, man has had a love affair with wisdom. Man has wanted to obtain wisdom. Entire civilizations have been built upon this want and quest for knowledge. Wisdom has always been one of man's deepest desires to possess and envy. Because those who obtain wisdom and seem to have knowledge are always esteemed by man. Ooh, they have such knowledge and ooh, they have such wisdom. And we esteem them and we basically put them on a, on a pedestal. You know, when Solomon first came to the throne of his father David, the kingdom of Israel was at its zenith. The kingdom of Israel was at its glory. It had been truly blessed by God. When Solomon became king, God spoke to Solomon and said, ask me what you want. Ask me what I will give you. Solomon prayed these words to the Lord. He said, Lord, I ask that you would give me wisdom in governing over your people. Scripture says that the Lord said back to Solomon, insomuch as you did not ask for fame or riches or honor, but you've asked for wisdom, I will grant unto you that which you have asked, but I will also give you that which you did not ask. I will give you wealth and honor and glory. So the Scripture says that God gave wisdom unto Solomon. You've heard it be said, oh, the wisdom of Solomon. If I only had the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon wrote a book of wisdom. It's called Proverbs. And we know that in Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then he contrasts it with the saying, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, he said. It's the beginning. Now, the Hebrew word here uses doesn't mean first. It means sum total. It means complete total. So in other words, the fear of the Lord is knowledge all wrapped up into one package. It's the summation of all the knowledge. That's what the fear of the Lord is. Then when you get to chapter 9, it appears that Solomon is repeating himself because he again says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It sounds like he's saying the same thing, but he's not. In this instance, the Hebrew word for beginning is first. Commencement. The first. The original steps. So the fear of the Lord is the first step, but it's also the total or the sum of all knowledge. Now, what does Solomon mean by the fear of the Lord? And as you get to chapter 8, verse 13, you read this. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. One commentator I read put it this way. What's the fear of the Lord is all about? Hate evil. So this is really the beginning in the sum of real knowledge. It's to hate evil. It's the first steps towards wisdom. Hate evil. Do you hate evil? Do you hate that which evil represents? I don't have to tell you that we're living in a very tolerant age. Unfortunately, our tolerance level has become very, very high. And we have become very tolerant of evil. What we're really lacking today is a hatred for evil. I was once at a church where they used to sing a, a song out of Scripture in Romans where it says, love God, hate sin. 
And the pastor said, we couldn't use the word hate anymore or sin. What? Well, that's what God commands me to do. Love him and hate sin. We're not to hate anything, we're told. That's what Scripture tells us. We're not to hate. So hate has been put on one of those intolerant words, and people who hate are intolerant. You know, we should just let everybody live. You know, live and let live. That should be the verse. And then we develop a deep tolerance for evil things. You know, evil is always seeking to be tolerated. Evil wants to be tolerated. Evil wants you to compromise and tolerate it. It's always looking for you to compromise and accept it. That's the norm nowadays. Oh, well. The real beginning in the sum of knowledge is to really the hatred of evil because God hates evil. If I'm the fellowship with God, I must hate evil. I can't tolerate evil in my life if I'm to have true fellowship with God. So the fear of the Lord is the summation of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom, and they despise instruction. Unfortunately, in Solomon's later years, he didn't really follow his own counsel, and he didn't really follow his own advice that he had given to his son in the first eight chapters of the book of Proverbs. He didn't even follow his own advice. He did not follow after wisdom, and we see the tragic results of this, which are reflected in his writing in the book of Ecclesiastics. In the book of Ecclesiastics, we see the reflections and experience of nothing but a philosopher who, whose mind was in conflict over the problems of life. What philosopher is not in conflict over the philosophies of life? We see a man who had everything, but yet had nothing. A man who had everything in life that he could possibly want and possibly wish for, and yet he cried out because of the emptiness and the frustration in his life, so much so that he now takes a materialistic point of view of the, of the life and has nothing better to do than enjoy carnal enjoyment and pleasures of life. As the writer appears throughout the pages of the book, it's quite evident that the, he's struggling with this. Well, at the same time, he is uttering profound truths concerning man's duty and man's obligation to God. At last, the writer, which we believe is Solomon, seems to emerge from his speculation and doubts, and he reaches this conclusion in chapter 23, 13. He said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. That is true philosophy. Christian philosophy then becomes fearing and obeying God. This is the wisest thing any man can do. Fear God and obey him. Human philosophy errs here because it doesn't fear God. And consequently, you can build a true philosophy by only fearing and believing God. And this leads to faith in what God is and what God says the answers are. This produces an obedience to his will, which produces faith. To have one true wisdom, one true knowledge, we must fear God, for this is fear and knowledge of the Lord. And this is where wisdom and knowledge will be found. The child who worships God is wiser than the philosopher who asks the questions. Who remembers Plato's big question? Who remembers Plato's big question? It was exactly the same as Pontius Pilate. What is truth? That was Plato's big question. Well, Plato, Mr. Pilate, truth is what God says it is. In reality, it's determined by God the creator. And we can understand truth only 
if the God of truth tells us what truth is. And God has done just that. He's given us his truth. He's taken the time to write it down for us so that we could read it. And he's given us minds to understand what he's written. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to help interpret what is written on these pages. God has made it quite easy for us to know truth. The Bible is the only one true book of philosophy. For it's found on the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. And this is where Christian philosophy comes in. The love of the wisdom of God. The love of wisdom is philosophy. But Christian, if you were going to have a Christian philosophy, it would be love for the wisdom of God and God alone. The Apostle Paul knew this. The Apostle Paul preached this. He's going to write at a later date in 1 Corinthians 2. Listen to what he writes here. Listen to this, his speech, beginning in verse 4. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who loved him, he continues. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in the words in which man's wisdom teaches, but in which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are not spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that they may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Wow. What's Paul saying here? Paul says, when I preach to you, I preach through the power of the Holy Spirit. And by God's wisdom, I didn't come to you in the power of man. I didn't come to you in the power of man's wisdom. I came to you in the power of God. True knowledge and true wisdom come from God and God alone. You know, in our text today, the apostle now enters into the hub of philosophy. He's going to Athens, the hub of the lovers of wisdom. You know, Athens was a home of great thinkers. You remember Plato, Aristotle, But by this time, the city of Athens was now in a period of decline. It was still, however, recognized as a center of education and culture. But instead of being a once influential city like it was, Paul finds a city given over to cultured paganism. That was what glutted on idolatry, novelty. A place where novelty and idolatry and philosophy were, were, were lifted up and exalted. That sound like any place you know? Just asking. 
two writers, Coney Bear and Halson, wrote in their classic book, Life and the Epistles of St. Paul, he wrote this, the Greek religion was a mere deification of human attributes and the powers of nature. It was a religion which ministered to art and amusing and was entirely destitute of moral power. Now, I know that sounds familiar. I know you've heard of that before. It has been said in Athens at this time, it was easier to find a god or a goddess than it was a man. And why? They estimate the population of Athens at this time to be 10,000. They only had about 30,000 gods and goddesses and idols that were strewn the streets. The streets were lined with them. The writer Hughes says this, the streets were lined with idols of false deities, framed by architectural magnificence of the Parthenon and the Acropolis. These were more than dazzling to the eye. Now, Paul is a cultured man. Paul is a very, very cultured man. You can imagine when he brings his Judaism into this place and he sees all these idols and all this idolatry. You have the picture now, and here comes the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is armed with one thing and one thing only, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all he has with him. As we begin our study in verse 16, it says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Paul went ahead of Timothy and Silas. Timothy and Silas would come later, at a later date. Paul is now waiting for them to arrive. He'd been sent out by night from Berea. We read that last time. And he's now waiting for them. But his spirit now is provoked because he sees all these idols. The word here is for provoke is paroxymono. Paroxymono. It means to stir or exasperate. Paul was greatly, greatly disturbed and distressed by what he saw. The word literally means that it was a paroxysm. P-A-R-O-X-Y-S-M. This is the same word that was used to describe the contention between Barnabas and Saul. This great, great anger and violent reaction and emotion. Paul had this exasperating emotion, this violent reaction to what he said, Saul. All these idols, everywhere he looked, everywhere he turned, idols. Paul was angry because a lie was being held here. A lie was being fed to the unsuspecting citizens. While on one hand, every idol was testifying to the Athenians' hunger for God, it also demonstrated that they were completely lost. And they were completely ignorant of the one true living God. Have you ever felt like Paul? Have you ever felt like Paul? I've mentioned before my love of the Wildwood Boardwalk. It's no secret. I love to walk the Wildwood Boardwalk this summer. And I've told you before, as I'm walking down there, something happens to my spirit. When I see all these people, all this crowd, these throngs from, from, from little kids to, to older, older, older people, my heart, there's something happens to it. You can, you can ask my wife. It happens. Something happens to it while I'm walking by there. I feel like Paul. I'm provoked. My spirit is stirred because I'm looking around, and the question is, how many of these people are lost? How many of these people are believing in a false religion for their hope, for their nurture? How many of these people are, are, are going to die and not go to heaven? What can I do about it? How can we reach this lost people who are there, who come down and spend everything they have? Do you realize what it costs for a vacation in Wildwood for a family of four? They 
spend everything they have for that one or two weeks during the summer. One, two weeks of what? Relaxation? No. They're more hectic than ever, spending money like it's gone out of style. They go into hot. They go into debt. These people are lost because it's all they have. It's all they have. It's if anything that we've learned is that nothing is permanent. There is nothing that is permanent. Think about that. These people in the north end of New Jersey have lost everything they've owned. Homes are completely washed away, wiped off their foundations, filled with sand, filled with water. These people have lost everything. Everything. What's left? Where do they find their consolation? Where are they looking for help? The government? Man? Yeah, man will help. Man will give them needs, give them things that they might rebuild, give them things that they might be able to get on with. You can rebuild all you want, but if you build on that ocean, guess what? That ocean will come up. If you don't have a spiritual foundation... And that foundation in Jesus Christ alone, everything will be washed away, and then what will you be left with? Where is your consolation then? Your consolation, your hope has to be in Jesus Christ. It has to be in God. I'm not trying to minimize any of the problems. Those people up there are hurting. I am not minimizing. If you're hearing me minimizing, you're not getting the point. The point is they need the one true living God for their consolation, for their hope, for their lives. That's what they need. True comfort. The Psalms are full of passages about true comfort. Where's my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Where's my strength come from? My strength comes from the Lord. The Lord is ever present in a time of trouble. He's always near. He's always there. You read the Psalms. Where do you get your strength? But guess what? All this, even the things we're sitting on, everything that we know, everything that we are, will Pass away. And that's not being fatalistic. That's being true because that's what the true word of God says. I'm just being real. It will pass away. But I'm speaking about that which will never pass away. That which will never fade into darkness. That which will be always glory. I'm talking about what is eternal, and I'm asking you, do you have that in him, the hope? In him is our comfort. In him is our strength. That's what these people need to know. Have you been like Paul where you've been so exasperated you couldn't speak? Seen something so... I get that way sometimes when I look at the T-shirts hanging on the Wildwood Boardwalk. What? I get exasperated. I can't even speak. Like, what? Does your heart ache? And do your eyes blur what you see around you? Ignorant souls denying the one true living God and giving their allegiance to false deities. You are when Jesus left earth following his resurrection, his followers weren't sure what was next. They had instructions from their Lord and Savior, but not much else. However, they chose to trust that what Jesus said was true and was going to change their lives. It did. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to minister to the world in ways they'd never have been able to do on their own. Is Jesus asking you to follow His instructions today? 
Maybe he's only given you a piece of the journey, or maybe he's asking you to wait. Take a cue today from the members of the early church. Trust Jesus to come through with his promises and change your life. We're so glad you tuned in to Assure Hope. We'd like to hear from you and learn how we can be praying for you. So please give us a call. Our number is 609-884-5821. If you'd like to hear more messages from this series in the book of Acts, you'll find them at assurehoperadio.com. There are several teachings on various books of the Bible available online for download. And we encourage you to share them with your friends and family. You can also receive a CD copy of today's message by calling us. Again, our number is 609-884-5821. That's all we have time for today. We're so glad we can share God's Word with you through this ministry. Pastor Dave will have more to share from this verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of the book of Acts. So we hope you'll join us again right here on A Sure Hope.